0: Forget
1: the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at
0: shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech.
2: You are listening to The Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Will Mavity's interview with the cinematographer for Blonde, Chase Irvin. Miss Monroe, it's time!
1: Mm. A kiss on the hand.
3: How'd
0: you get your start?
1: Maybe. What start?
0: In movies.
1: White continental. But diamonds
2: are a girl's best friend. I guess I was discovered.
1: broke home as girls. I know you're supposed to get used to it. And we all lose our job in the end. But I just can't. Square could pear shape. I've played Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe, Girl, Marilyn Monroe. Friend. I can't face doing another scene with Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn doesn't exist. When I come out of my dressing room, I'm Norma Jean. I'm still hurt when the camera is rolling. on the screen i guess first and foremost i know andrew dominic spent like 12 years researching marilyn monroe's life right and endless photos tell me a little bit about kind of the initial references you used from his research when you were crafting kind of the general visual style of this film
4: yeah well Andrew had accumulated a plethora of uh, images from her life and from the period. And he created a document that was probably like
3: 780
4: pages, give or take. Wow. And it was images um, kind of almost representing similarly what the storyboards would be. So they were in a order of her life in the mm-hmm. script order. So it starts with images from the 1920s and on of different, you know, Model T cars and this and that. And then it went into sort of the pinup images of her when she first. She wasn't an actress yet in, in real life in her bio. It sort of says that she was she worked at a, a munitions factory, I believe. Mm. And her husband had gone to war. And she had worked doing labor, and some someone from the military had come up to her to ask her to do some photos for the troops hmm. and that sort of spinballed into the pinup girl and then she became an actress after that
1: oh interesting
4: yeah
0: yeah she
4: she actually became famous, similar to the It was actually a scandal. It was similar to sort of the formula that some women like Kim Kardashian, who really, you know, a sex tape was released. Mm -hmm. Marilyn had had some nude photos of her for the pinup world. And she started acting. And fuck, what was that? Uh, John Huston film. Uh, Something jungle, asphalt jungle.
1: Oh, Uh, yeah, yeah.
4: Yeah. The Asphalt Mm -hmm. Jungle. So I think I I might be incorrect. It's been a few years since I read all this stuff, but I feel like she had, that was sort of her, one of her very early roles. Mm -hmm. And she's only in a few scenes in that for a very brief period. And after that film had been released, the photos of her nude came out and she sort of spoke in public. I think you can find the recordings of her basically saying like, oh, I was just a, you know, trying to make my way in life. And it created like a very compassionate response around American collective. Yeah. And she sort of shot up as this sex symbol. She, I think, you know, if you Google the word sex symbol, a photo of hers at the beginning of the Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. And it's been that way for a very, very long time. So she sort of became famous from the scandal and then the studio started to try to reap those rewards
0: from that
1: right so you um you you have all these photos of her obviously that Andrew assembled and I guess one thing that's striking is it looks like you have meticulously recreated and kind of moving visual form some of these photos of her tell me a little bit about that Did you know the kinds of lenses, focal lengths that were used at the time to capture her? Because it's it's honestly eerie at times how uncanny some of the recreations are.
4: Yeah, Andrew would call it a seance. He wanted it to be a bit of a seance and recreate images from her life. So we had this document and not every image is like an iconic image, but it's definitely stuff people had consumed over time. And he felt like it would create um, it was an experimental idea, to be honest with you. He felt like we could create one of those images and stage a scene within it. You know, the, there's a sequence where it's sort of a tableau tracking across this these male um, people that are sort of like coming to the premiere. And they're just like hungry for her. And then the limousine comes into the foreground and you end in this portrait of Marilyn the playwright, and the studio executive. Mm -hmm. That's an actual photo. So what we were doing is we were taking that, (laughs) we were basically taking that image, which I think came from the premiere of the film, Mm -hmm. and we were staging a scene within it. And it was sort of the scene was an expression of her psychological state. So it's, a, it pushes to an absurdity. As you can see, she gets out of the limo and the camera drifts towards the crowd and their, their, their faces start to distort and their mouths start to, you know, howl like animals. And then it ends up on her again. And that was sort of one of our goals when we were going through it. And at some times we were, it was way more, it was really challenging. You know, I, I have, a need for realism and authenticity at some points but Mm -hmm. this film was violating that entirely so i felt a little bit out of my realm in some sense but you know andrew and i did a lot of work kind of trying to develop the eye for that kind of absurdity we were watching fellini films we were watching a lot of fellini actually (laughs) and so we were we were watching these films and it was, you know, realism isn't something that is a, an aspiration in those. So we were kind of like fucking with that stuff quite a bit. And it was really interesting to me because I hadn't developed those skills.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's some pretty, I imagine, VFX heavy scenes. You're talking about realism. I was curious about one of the first scenes is you have this wildfire coming. And um, we revisit the fire a couple times, like when she goes under when they perform an abortion. And, uh, you know, we have that tracking shot of her running through the hospital and into her house and there's fire everywhere. Tell me a little bit about doing those sequences that I assume you had to augment with VFX, but lighting for the fire and stuff like that.
4: Yeah, we some of the stuff like there's images of her running up the staircase that go into her room her her home, her childhood home. And we shot the staircase at the, where we shot the abortion. So we sort of filled it with smoke and tried to create a mystery around that, try to get as many particles in the frame. And then as she breaks through the door, we're in her childhood again. And I basically hung a lot of different Christmas lights and light uh, LEDs along the areas where the fires were so that the VFX team could then composite in something. Mm -hmm. But I would still get, you know, oftentimes I see uh VFX as a blemish on a on a film because I value timelessness. And I feel like when you integrate the extraneous amount of it, it starts to really put a stamp on the film in a particular time period that it was produced in. And one of the things that I'm always trying to contribute is when you have particular optics that are, are shooting scenes, there's elements called uh, glare, flare, a spherical aberration, spherical aberrations, um, coma, astigmatism. And those things don't really embed in, when you take in uh, images such as VFX, for example, mm-hmm. like, if she's in the middle ground and the fires in the background there would her silhouette would create glare you would be able to render it because of the contrast so if mm-hmm. there were if they'd just thrown light or thrown a fire on there you wouldn't actually have these depth cues that sort of indicate that it is real so uh, mm-hmm. when i think about these scenes i try to augment them as authentically as possible even though it's absurd do you know what i'm trying to say
1: yeah, I think so. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Like the her standing in front of a fire and running into a house that's on fire is absurd. But I still want it to have some sort of sense of authenticity. So I'm working. It's, it's really kind of a balancing act. Yeah, you I was know? say,
1: it's a lot of tension to work with there. Yeah. So what about the opening scene where she's driving with her mom and the whole kind of valley is on fire? Uh, that seems like that was probably even more difficult. To... Yeah,
4: we it was a similar approach. We used a lot of practical effects, but we couldn't use fire clearly because <laughs> yeah, uh, California, of
1: all places. Yeah, and we shot
4: yeah, exactly. down L.A. Totally. So we placed in key areas, and I think I did a few camera tests on the hill with the crew. So I had. Um, created these lights called batten strips Mm -hmm. which is an array of uh, household bulbs and i'd put them on the ground in the background and i tested a few locations and i really like this one location because there's a big tree that kind of came over the road and it was um, almost looked like a carcass and we added a bunch of smoke and lit it from within the smoke and concealed the batten and it created this sensation of like, oh, it's on fire. And mm-hmm. It was quite beautiful. So on the shoot day, we we did something similar, but we added a lot. We used LEDs. They were, I think they were chroma Q. I I think they're eight foot battens and we placed them in different areas along the hill. And then on the road, kind of right next to where they were driving and what would reflect into the glass on the in the windshields and the sides. We used Christmas lights and we had mm. them all on flicker generators so that they would augment. And in VFX, the the VFX guys knew exactly where to put the flames. And we did that. And then at the end of the scene, when uh Gladys is uh violently reacting to no- Norma Jean we shot that on stage on an LED screen Mm. and while we were doing the front part of that scene we had hired a uh, plate car so it had an array of still cameras uh, GH5s shooting video and it would do the run that we were doing and then we took those plates and we brought them into the LED stage and it created an artificial environment that mimicked Exactly mm. that, and I was really impressed with it. We shot it on a the last day of the shoot. in fact, we shot we'd finished the shoot, and we came back a week later to to shoot more stuff there mm. because um the led stage had been we were the first productions to shoot there, and they had some kinks to work out, and it cost mm. us the time that we we needed. so they gifted it back to us later,
1: so you mentioned earlier some of the natural distortions that uh Come on camera, and I noticed this project. It seems like you kind of threw everything but the kitchen sink at it in terms of kind of interesting, unique aesthetics. You got changing aspect ratios. You have you mentioned the distortions, the scene where she's going to get her abortion, and you have this kind of circular warping around uh, everything as she walks down her drive towards the car. And then you 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 shoot like behind her cars later in the film with full blown fisheye lenses. So tell me a little bit about some of those kind of choices to use these very warping lenses and filters.
4: Yeah, I, it was sort of a process of discovery. I have this thing that I call. Uh, I learned it from jazz. To be honest with you, my mother's a jazz musician and singer, vocalist, and I grew up in the um a witness to the jazz scene and they had this thing called wood shedding where you would come up with uh, harmonic devices kind of in your own isolation and you'd stick them in your pocket and you would pull it out whenever you wanted to get outside the ordinary during a set and i started doing the same thing whenever i would come onto a film and i would work sort of in secret i didn't want any interference and i would come up uh, basically stimulate happy accidents. I would set up a shoot of somebody in period clothing and just shoot in their apartment and follow follow them around. and I would f- discover these things and I would stick them in my pocket. so there's a lot of different events in which I use that. and in in particular with the
3: I was um, I was working with uh, Dan Suzaki at Pandavision who uh, I had gone to, here's a, one anecdote. I had, I had gone to Aerie in the same day to go to an event because they had just opened a, a facility there. We were renting the black and white Alexa camera from them. And then, but our optics were coming from Panavision. So, and our, our Venice camera. camera And uh, so I, spent, I go to the ARI event and, you know, they're showing us these lenses and it's these guys in lab coats and white loves, And they're very, you know, elegant. And they're showing us how they maintenance these things. Then I go to Panavision because I need to meet Net Dan. And he comes out of the back room and his literally his elbows are from his fingers to his elbows is grease. <laughs> and it's the exact opposite. And I really valued that it sort of created a sense of human touch that I really, it sort of feels like that same sentiment that my mother and my family members left me with when they were discovering the Mm. art form of jazz. So I started working with Dan and I would, I would, you know, shoot various tests and they have like a little stage there and I would shoot those tests and I just started discovering all these different elements, weird lenses that had um, various aberrations. And at the time you, you mentioned a few shots like the, the shot at the back of the limo, the, the 12 that's a 12 mil H, H series lens, which is a series of lenses that they hadn't come out with. In fact, uh, they're called H series. Now they were then, but that was actually just a temporary name. Mm so sort of like they were coming out with new ideas and um you know answering the needs of certain cinematographers who are exploring a new format called full frame so i was just jumping in on all that stuff and trying to find things that sort of added flavor uh in terms of recreating the you asked earlier the recreating the images from maryland's life that was a little tricky I you know researching what focal lengths they had shot on is not really possible but what I did do is I found out sort of what was what was accessible at the time because right now in our history we have a plethora of lenses you can pretty much choose like a series will have you know 12 different focal lengths in it or something like that back then there wasn't that anything like that. There was in cinema, there's the Baltars, there was the cooks <laughs> and maybe the Kawas from Japan. And in still photography, it was likely, I assumed it was likely a 50 mil that they were using. So I used a 50 mil almost, uh, continuously for all those shots, but I shot full frame, which is a matching, um, I guess, diameter or pixel aspect ratio to what 35 millimeters still photography were. Mm. So I was sort of like making these assessments. And then when we were on the actual set, I'd have a printout of the photo and I would look at it and I would try to place it in exactly the right position. And we were shooting in many times, almost, I would say 75% of the time in the actual location she had existed in. uh, Yeah, like there's this, she lived in a lot of different places in LA and we would dance from all those places, just going through each one staging scenes. And there's a lot more stuff that we shot that never made the film, but it was quite, uh, quite the task. So, but it was actually a little bit more easy for me in that sense, because I could see the image and I could try to emulate exactly the height the orientation of the frame, whether it's in some cases they still photographers shoot vertical. I guess what I'm trying to say is I think they shoot a three to two aspect ratio. So, but they'll shoot vertically. So I'll do the, the same thing with the camera. I'll rotate at 90 degrees and shoot the same thing. Mm. Yeah. There was just a lot of different ideas that I was kind of developing through the woodshedding. And then, um, I felt like uh creatively motivated to do that because it became basically in the script and in the book, blonde, the story is actually a retelling of her life, but the way it's told is is in fact, she's possibly dead or already dead and she's living reliving her life or she's having her last breath that she's lived, reliving her life at the moment of death and it's coming from the sentiment of her taking her own life mm-hmm. so a uh, relationship she had uh, you know like the scene with jfk in real life it may have been that bond with not jfk but bobby kennedy that stimulated the breaking of that bond with Bobby Kennedy, stimulating the choice to take her own life. And Joyce Carlos combines all these characters and artistic expression to sort of tell the story because it's not a bio. But like that scene of JFK is her resenting him for, do you know what I mean? It's not yeah. necessarily factual, right, it's right. just a projection of how she's feeling. Well, she's taking her own life. Mm. So I felt completely free to sort of violate logic and experiment with things that would almost uh, help describe sort of those, uh, that wave of emotions that she's going through and trying to confront all these demons that she has in her life so that she can ultimately let go.
0: Yeah Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: One of the more kind of, I wouldn't say experimental because it's a technique I've seen now, but uh, I was curious about moments that you use, and I guess you probably came to this from woodshedding, where you've strapped the rig, I think, to the torso. You see it with Bobby Cannavale when he's coming into the house, when he's about to beat her. And then when she gets her uh, tranquilizer injection and she falls down onto the bed, and then she gets out and is kind of wandering deliriously through the house. Tell me a little bit about that setup you did. So, you know what I'm talking
3: about? Yes, yeah, I do. It was a scene that um, we'd shot in the house for a few days, and we knew that we were going to, we preconceived that particular shot because we needed to prepare Bobby for the weight of the camera and decide what kind of focal length and all this stuff to make it work. And my key grip, Joe, Joey DeAnda, he had raped Bobby with it. And we did many takes. And Bobby's such a hero to me for that. Because, y- you know, you could see him sort of, kind of squinting in pain when he's running up the stairs. <laughs> he's taking a lot of weight. Yeah. And he was, you know, he was moving so quickly that there couldn't be the uh, support that would be for the scenes with Anna that we used a similar technique because he was running up a set of stairs and you can't have somebody running up stairs right. back. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah.
1: Sorry? So I'm about out of time, but there's two more uh, locations I want to yeah. talk about. Uh, the old school movie theater setups, so whenever we see her in a premiere, I thought those was really yeah. interesting. Tell me yeah. a little bit about, uh, you shot wide from above into the side, and tell me a little bit about lighting, because I assume whatever the movie on screen was, was imposed in post. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So yes. tell me about the, the, that location. You're talking about interiors. Yeah.
3: So the movie wasn't uh, done in post. I had lit the scenes with projections. We had originally gone to the, the theater and had them project 35 millimeter with some, I think they had various prints that they could just show us. And none of them had the intensity that would be possible for me to, to capture, even though I had characters that I liked, like Flicker Fusion, which is sort of, you know, the reason why they call movies the flicks back in the day mm-hmm. is because it's not perceptible, but there is a moment of black.
1: Your mm-hmm. brain just it filters it out. Yeah.
3: If, well, no, it, it creates the image that's not there. Uh-huh. So, when it goes black, it's actually taking the image before your brain and it's
1: putting mm. it
0: in.
3: So, I found those details that I liked. And then we'd worked in reverse, in the sense, or no, I guess it was in order. We would shoot the scenes that we are projecting, not seven years, it, seven year itch, but uh, Diamonds are a girl's best friend, which is gentlemen prefer blondes, gentlemen prefer blonde. And we'd shoot that sequence. And then I would send it to my colorist, Tom Poole, who would then create a Technicolor look out of it. And it was challenging, but we, I, I was trying my hardest to get a Technicolor print of one of those films in pre-production so I could see exactly what Technicolor looked like when it was actual Technicolor, because what we interpret today that's on a digital format is completely different. Right. Film to see what it actually looked like, unless we see the print. And even prints now are probably aged and deteriorated. So who knows if that's even possible. But I took, I took the images of the Blu ray that I knew of, and then I tried that uh, or I requested that Tom emulate them identically. And he had done that. And it was much more like compositing than color correction. And then they would send it back to us. Now, the second part of that that is also challenging is that when you're on a, on a set and you're using an actual projection, say you took your iPhone and you, uh, you started recording the computer screen. Well, the computer screen doesn't look like it how it does to your heart. right? So when we, on the phone at least, so we had to set up the cameras and then grade the image looking at the monitor that's displaying what the camera showing. So we had a colorist on our set, Dustin, and we'd have my laptop set up to the computer or sorry, the projector, and we would send in all the graded footage that Tom had done. And then we would regrade it to be display sort of our intentions. And it was really tricky because it's all perceptual. It's not necessarily like a scientific thing that you can do. You can't just transform it with a filter or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So um, it was really challenging it was like it was one of those things where i i an added responsibility on top of uh shooting the scene that's like emotionally driven so it's that kind of stuff that was and you know we only shot those scenes in one day there was other stuff that we were shooting in the basement that never made the film so it was quite a crazy day we had maybe three or four cameras going all at the same time and yeah, we would project, we would bounce light off the ceiling, we would create a, you know, when she's watching herself, or when we're watching her watch, uh, Gentlemen prefer blondes, there's this red light washing over her face, yeah. and that was a choice that became much more impressionistic. And sort of her feelings of, like, uh, sadness and sorrow, having to cho- having chosen... To be Marilyn rather than normal. Mm. That is Marilyn. And now she's looking back at herself, kind of disgusted. So I was making these kind of choices based off of the psychological state that she was going in, but then also trying to, in some ways, connect with my my uh, need for authenticity. So it was quite the challenge. But then also violating that at of those moments.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine navigating that tension. The last specific shot I was curious on, when we first meet Adrian Brody, you shot it with like, it looked like almost um, kind of a 70s era film stock when we see him wandering around New York. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it, yeah. I was curious about that choice. It's uh, it's this filtered, it's kind of like an orange-hued image.
3: Yeah, yeah. That's actually, uh, that was uh, VFX. So what we had done is we were working with a, a woman who was, a, I guess, an archival expert. And uh, I was pulling plates for some of the driving footage and then also that scene. And there's a film called Zelig. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen that film? It's a Woody Allen film.
1: No, no, I know that's uh, it's the one with the chameleon dance.
3: Yeah, he's a yeah. chameleon. changes. Okay. You no, he's like, you travel through his whole life. And uh, it's a documentary on this individual who does, who's a comedian. But they sort of superimpose and they go into different aesthetics over time. And it was sort of a, that idea. We sort of wanted to take an actual plate of New York. And we found it. And I'm, uh, I'm sensing it was Technicolor. We found the negative. We scanned the negative at eFilm. And uh, then uh, shot a plate of Adrian Brody walking through the streets and dropping his papers and looking up at the sky. And they stitched them all together.
1: So,
0: mm.
3: yeah.
1: I guess it, before I go, I should ask you, what was it like lighting to shoot for black and white? It's, there's this
3: uh, style of painting that I like called... Um, tenebrism
0: mm-hmm.
3: it uses what i would term um positive space where it creates uh, almost like a spotlight on the character and then it falls off in the shadow mm-hmm. behind
1: is this it's- caravaggio type painting
3: yes exactly he,
1: oh he, okay yeah of course of course
3: well so in a lot of those sequences i was doing it like that on on scenes where I would light the characters even from the top or the front and then I would allow the the background to go away. And I wanted to do that because again in maryland's psyche, from what I understand, this philosopher that I value named Frederick Nietzsche, he talked about this concept called the natural attitude. And he would say that when you walk down the street and you look at a you pass a tree and it you actually don't see the tree. The tree is so complex in its bark and branches and its its leaves and tones that it's much easier for the human brain to fantasize an approximation of the tree. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that happens in our experience in life. Our brain is actually rendering, based off of associations, the things that are happening around it. And I would think, when Marilyn was reliving her life, there would, it may be void of some of the details. It might be something that someone said that she only remembers. So I would render it in a way that it was just her and, the, you know, like maybe she's falling in love or maybe it's, um, you know, when her wardrobe's coming on and they're having a conversation and the, the costume designers trying to get her in her outfit. And it's just like, you don't see the dressing room anymore, or at least it's there, but it's sort of a figment.
0: You mm-hmm. can't really
3: see the details. So I was experimenting with that stuff a lot, in the black and white, um, and then sometimes color. I don't know if I I had like a different strategy per, because oftentimes I didn't know until I had already, we had blocked the scene that if it was going to be in black and white, or, mm. it was sort of a, I relied on Andrew to sort of stimulate the challenge in me. So he would, we would get to the set and he would be like, okay, this is what happens. We'd block the scene. And then you, I would ask, is this in black and white or color? And he would choose Mm. that. And I really like that way of working because I like it when I don't have to think. And I'm not saying that as that is, if I value becoming obedient to authority I I sort of more think of it as uh, intuition mm. and I get to respond to something intuitively, and that is actually also an extension of that human touch that I, I'm trying to express. Cause anytime I get stuck in thoughts, the result of that will only be something that I've seen before or someone else has seen before. The only you can only have you can never have a new thought. Mm-hmm. So I'm always struck when I when I work with the directors like Andrew, which is very rare, and they can feed me these things that constantly keep me in this in a flow state. It's just such a gift.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was a really uh, very cool synergy between the two of you, and obviously. Created a really striking film. I know even people who aren't necessarily fans of the film as a whole love its visual style. So I mean, it's
3: yeah. You know. I received an interesting comment on Instagram not too long ago because I was I shared something from my um, Joyce Carol Oates wrote it with the intentions of it of Marilyn looking back on her life, but not being embodied in it anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh like she's passed, and I put that, I quoted her in in what she had said, and I put it on the door of my office. So anytime someone would come in to my office, they could read it. And it was really the psychological place that I was coming from as a cinematographer. So I shared it, and someone had commented in a way that, uh, was critical of uh, of Joyce, I guess his thoughts, and uh then they said something else that was kind of critical or cruel and and I just sort of accepted it because i I think it's very good that there's an interpretive quality to the film, even if it is positive or negative or repulsive or whatnot to others and really sublime to others and then she she commented back basically you know she said all these things that were really negative about the film and then she just said but it's the most beautiful thing i've ever seen your work is wonderful. <laughs> and i just started laughing as i was like oh, that's <laughs> a weird interaction
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is <laughs> well yeah, i mean uh, i think it's really cool people are uh, definitely know your name after after this year and uh Uh, I think we all look forward to seeing Mother Couch. Is there anything else you're working on that we have coming up for you soon? I'm uh, nothing
3: confirmed. I'm just sort of uh, waiting for something that something similar to Blonde, not in the sense that uh, aesthetic approach, but more ambition. Because uh, Blonde was an extremely ambitious film. That was um, I worked on it. I think I worked on it a year. Wow, yeah, yeah and that's not including the post-production that's the pre-production and the, when we finished the production, it was almost it would have been eleven and a half months or eleven months wow. so and I'm looking for something similar to that because I really like you know doing things where you can you know you're really trying to harness it to a particular depth and when you work on something over that time period, that intuition is so much stronger. Mm-hmm. You're not working off of theories anymore. It's sort of all, you've, you're living life. The film is just your life. And I like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been really thorough and uh, best of luck. I don't know if you care about awards or not, but best of luck this award season, uh, you know, in the cinematography races. Thank hey, you. Thank hey. there.
3: It's always nice to receive um, well wishes and respect from colleagues and people that I admire. I don't know if I care so much about certain aspects of awards, but when it's somebody that contributed to my life and my sentiment and my philosophy, coming back at me expressing their admiration, it's very, very meaningful.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chase. You have a great rest of the weekend.
3: Thank you.
2: Thank you. You too. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interview with the cinematographer for Blonde, Chase Irvin, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time.